Thank you, worship team. I cannot think of a more appropriate song to begin something new today, a new series. You know, this has been an exciting week, hasn't it? And uh, the Lord has done some great things, and it just even adds to the excitement to have that beautiful weather out there. Isn't it nice to go from, from getting rid of your snow and shoveling snow to, to cutting grass? And there's something nice about that. There's something even nicer about having your son do it. But, um, but I've really enjoyed the weather nonetheless. It's just been a beautiful time. We are, we're beginning a new series, and this, this is exciting too. As we're beginning a new season, new series, lots of things going on. This series is going to be on the book of Romans. Romans, making sense of what matters most. And it's about what we just sang about. About the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross for us. You know, it's so important when you think about the, uh, the book of Romans. I want to give you a little bit of background about the book of Romans to make sure that we understand, just to get a little foundation before we jump right into the text. But I want you to understand uh, who wrote it, first of all. Who wrote the book of Romans? Anyone know? Everyone, everyone knew the answer to that. The answer is, is the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul is one of, the, one of our favorite characters in the scripture, right? And he's, um, he wrote more books than any other person. Not just in the New Testament, but in general. He wrote more books than anyone. Other than Luke, he actually wrote, if you were to put all of his books together, other than Luke, he wrote more than anyone else in the New Testament as well. Now, Luke wrote quite a bit. He only wrote two books. He wrote the, the Gospel according to Luke, but that's a pretty big Gospel, and he also wrote the book of Acts, uh, which is Luke part two, really, and, uh, and so he wrote a little bit more, but he has written more letters in more contexts, and we also see the greatest impact of the Gospel that we see in anyone. I, can, I can't think of anyone in the New Testament that was affected more by the Gospel. When you look at the beginning of his life to the end of his life, what a radical change, right? Remember what Paul was doing before accepting the gospel? Yeah, he was a missionary, right? He was, he was on a mission. And that mission was to wipe out all Christians. That was his job. That's what he did. And he was popular for it. He was good at it. And then the gospel comes along, and he's still a missionary. <laughs> but he's got a completely new, new mission. And he did more to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ into the Gentile world than anyone else. Did he not? And so this is, this is the author of, of the book of Romans. And so, we, so I can't wait to see how he describes the gospel when the gospel impacted him so deeply. Can you? Um, what about the occasion? Uh, here's a, here we have a map of uh, the Mediterranean world at the time. If you look to the bottom right-hand side, you'll see Caesarea and Jerusalem. You'll see two lakes there. That's where we've been focusing in the book of Joshua. That's the promised land. That's where, where it begins. But then the gospel begins to spread from Jerusalem out to the rest of the world. Um, so it, Paul was on his third missionary journey. So he was traveling through all of the main cities that, and the coastal cities, and he was starting church after church after church, and the gospel began to spread. And he made it as far as, I don't, I don't know if you can read that, but he made it as far as Corinth. From Corinth, his plan was to continue on uh, to, to make his way over to Rome. And uh, because Rome is, was the center of really the, the civilization, the entire Roman Empire uh, was based out of Rome there. And then his thought was to go westward from there on up to Spain, which is off of the map. That was his plan, but you'll notice that part's in blue. He didn't get to do that. The, 
his plan changed, his plan A uh, uh, changed, and he had to go with plan B because he got called back to Jerusalem uh, for some special needs that were taking place there. And so he wanted, in his heart of hearts, to continue on to Rome and go from there and have, that they would give the gospel on to Spain, but he was delayed. And so he ended up backtracking, following the same path, collecting funds from the, from the churches to go help out some of the, the, poor, uh, the poor people in Jerusalem that needed it because of the persecution they were suffering. So instead he had to go back there. So when you look at the occasion, there are a couple of things I want to point out. Number one, Paul had heard that the gospel had spread to Rome, but had not had a chance to go there. This is one of the few areas in the geographical map where Paul didn't start the works there. Paul started the works in other places, and then those churches sent out missionaries. That's what churches are supposed to do, right? And so they sent out missionaries. Those missionaries made it to Rome. They go to Rome. They spread, they spread the gospel, and all of a sudden the Roman church is picking up. And you're, getting, you're having uh, Christians rise up. And, um, and so he, he had heard about that, but he had never actually had an opportunity to go there as a believer. Right? As a believer, he had not had a chance to go there yet. Secondly, uh, it's, it's important to point out that he was called to go back to Jerusalem and that he had heard rumors that he might be killed there. It's important to understand because if he's going back to Jerusalem thinking that he may never get a chance to finish his plan, he may never get a chance to go back to Romans, that's going to affect the way he writes his message, don't you think? And, uh, and then the third thing I want to point out, he wished to lay a solid theological foundation for the Roman believers, and that they could take the gospel westward from there. And so the result is, is that we have a really, unique, a really unique letter. There is no other letter like this in the New Testament, because there are several advantages to what's going on here. One of the advantages that we have is that Paul never had a chance to meet the people he was writing to. Right? He didn't have a chance to meet them. See, if we read the book of 1 Corinthians, which is also a good book, or a book to the Thessalonians, or a book to different people, it's a very specific group of people in a very specific circumstance. And so we have to kind of come into the middle of a relationship and try and figure out what's going on. With the Romans, he doesn't know them at all. And so he decides to make sure he, he does... He writes the entire book in a very logical, comprehensive, systematic way. And the result is that Romans is the most comprehensive, systematic explanation of the gospel that exists. And it provides such a deep foundation for our faith and practice if we understand the gospel of Romans. I call it the gospel of Romans. Is that all right? Because that's really what it's, what it's all about. In fact, that's why Martin Luther wrote these words. He wrote, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian know it word for word, by heart, but that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with and the more, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Such a solid theological foundation for everything that we believe. Amen? And so I hope that, uh, that you're encouraged that to, as we start this, this series, to, sit, to, to taste what God has in store for us. By the way, the gospel did go out from there. It did go westward. And the fact that we're here today on the other side of the world bears testimony to the fact that the foundation that Paul laid worked. Right? And so we, we see that. Uh, we see that. Um, the theme, then, is very simple. It's the gospel of God. You don't have to get past Romans 1.1 1, 1 to see that. That's the theme of the book of Romans. 
What that, what that means is it talks about the imparting of God's righteousness upon mankind. Right from verse 1, you realize this is not about man earning something, right? Right from verse 1, you realize that the gospel of God is about God imparting his righteousness to us. God imparting his righteousness to us. The outline, and you don't have to write this down, I just want, to, I want you to know where we're going. Okay, well, This is where we're going as we study the book of Romans. In the middle, you see the word Romans or righteousness. Because it has to do with, uh, with righteousness. It's all about that. The first thing we'll, we'll deal with is uh, the doctrine of sin. In, in chapters 1, 1 through 3.30, so two and a half full chapters, uh, dealing with sin. You know, the good news doesn't start with good news. Did you know that? Good news always starts with bad news. And good news only has meaning if we understand the bad news. We, we will need to understand the doctrine of sin. By the way, this is going to clarify for us so many things about what's going on around us. Because we live in a sinful culture, do we not? And we see sin taking hold of people. We see uh, people being slaves. To their- We're going to understand so much about sin. Then we'll go from there. We'll deal with salvation. What's the, what's the solution for sin? Uh, and we'll deal with salvation one thing I noticed, uh, um, as we, as we, as, and you might notice as you look at this, a lot of people think that the gospel is about sin and salvation, and it stops there. But this is only one-third of the way through Romans, and you're through salvation. Did you know that the, that the doctrine of the gospel affects so much more than just your eternal destiny? Did you know that? We deal with sin. We'll deal with salvation. It goes on from there. The next thing uh, that Romans deals with is sanctification. The power of the gospel is also, the, it's the same power that saved you as the power that will sanctify you. We'll talk about what that means. And, uh, and, and then security. What we need to know along that journey, that spiritual journey. And we need to, the confidence that we can have, knowing that just as the gospel was not something we could earn or deserve to be saved... But it's also something we don't earn or deserve in the process of sanctification. We can't lose our salvation. It's a gift of God. Isn't that that amazing? And it gives us the confidence to continue forward. And from there, uh, we'll go into the selection. Well, then how does a person get saved? How does does that happen? And then the last thing, service. I might actually change that word. When we were singing that last song, and I heard heard a sing the word surrender, and I thought, I think I like that word better for those last few chapters. But uh, we, see, we see this full circle, this full understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I believe that if we as a church grasp the depths, the theological depths of the gospel of God, it will radically change Southwest Michigan. Do you believe that? It will radically change Southwest Michigan. And I believe beyond that as well. Let's, uh, let's hop right in then. Let's uh, start by reading Romans chapter 1. If you can turn with me, Romans chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 6. This is the part that, uh, it's really just the initial greeting uh, that, uh, that Paul gives. Typically, you would, you would start the greeting with, with who you are and then who you're talking to. But this is Paul's description of himself. By the way, it's one sentence. Actually, verses 1 through 6 is not even the whole sentence. It include, the whole sentence includes chapter 6. In English, I think we break it up a couple times, but uh, in, in, in Greek, it was all one big run-on run sentence. By the way, that's important because you see the, the, uh, 
the excitement of Paul that he just starts talking and it's coming out and, they, and you get that feeling like he's chomping at the bit. Well, let's see what he's chomping at the bit for. It says, Paul, verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Wow, what a way to introduce himself, right? And so here he's, he's just trying to introduce himself, but somehow he slips the entire gospel in there. Right? So he, he's, he's explaining what the gospel is, and, and there's some interesting things in there. He, he brings up three points. Uh, one, he talks about the prophets, and look at verses 2 and 3a. He's talking about the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He wants to remind us that, hey, what I'm about to talk about isn't just coming from me. This was prophesied hundreds of years ago, and this all came true. It was, this was prophesied. There's some, there's some authority that goes with that. He goes on in, uh, in, verse, in verse 3, and he says... Um, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the, of the seed of David according to the flesh. Why is that important? Well, you see, he's talking about a Davidic covenant, a Davidic promise. And he's saying, this, this Jesus that we're about to talk about is the fulfillment of a promise. And, and see, the Davidic promise is a part of another promise, which is a part of another promise, which is a part of another promise. It, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We have the Adamic promise, the promise to Adam. And, uh, and you might remember uh, a promise that, that the seed of a woman was going to destroy the, the serpent. Remember that? And then we, we find that just getting narrowed down more and more as, as you go. You go from the Edenic promise to the Noahic promise to, to the Mosaic to the Abrahamic. And eventually the Davidic promise where it said that the, the, this Messiah, the anointed one, the king, is going to come in the line of David. So Paul reminds us that this promise, this Davidic promise is also pointing to the same thing that the prophets were pointing to. And then one other thing he points to, verse, uh, verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He wanted to remind them that this message comes with power. Why? Because Jesus Christ didn't stay dead. That's an amazing thing. And he's saying, Remember, this is it. And all of these things point to one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. He's saying whether the, the prophets, the, the promises, the genealogical lines, all of that, the power, we see the power of the resurrection. And guess what? It all points to Jesus Christ. Remember, this is just his introduction of himself. Right? He's, he's already getting ahead of himself. And we see him stop, go back, and he'll take the gospel from point one. But we see this gospel of God, even in his introduction of himself. Well, then, who is he writing to? Look at verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. This part is very short. Right? He, doesn't say a whole, uh, he doesn't say a whole lot in, uh, about who he's writing to. Why? Because he didn't really know them yet. He, didn't, he hadn't met them. And so he's just saying, to all of those who are called to be saints, to all the Christians... And he goes on to say in the second half of the verse, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that he uses two different greetings there. He uses grace. That was one of the common things that you'd hear in, um, 
in, in, uh, in Rome. You would, people would go up to each other and instead of saying hi, they'd say grace. Right? It was just their, it was a common, common greeting. And uh, then you look at the second one, it's peace. Well, who, who used peace? The Jews did. In fact, they, to this day, if you go up to a Jew, how, is your, how do you greet them? You say, shalom. What does shalom mean? Peace, right? So he's, even in his, in his introduction, he's bringing up another little root idea, the seed idea that we're going to see all through the, throughout the book of Romans. And it's this idea that the gospel isn't just for the Jews, it's for the Jews and the Gentiles together. So how does he say, say hello? Grace and peace to you. Sounds a little politically correct, right? <laughs> Didn't want to offend anybody. But why? But because that we are united. And so we even see that begin to take place as he forms, uh, forms the gospel. In verses 8 through 15, we read about his, uh, his reasons for writing the letter and, and what was going on. This is where we get the information of the occasion of the book. So let's read that together. Verse 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, uh, if by some means, now at last, find, I might find a way in the will of God to come and see you. So he expresses that he wanted to see you. Verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, laying that foundation. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks, the word there for Greeks can be translated Gentiles as well, and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So here, we find the word gospel multiple times again. We, we, we see the reason, and that's where, where he's, I want to lay down a, a strong foundation for you. I can't come see you right now. I'm still hoping to come see you. But until then, I, I want to participate in your ministry, and I want to help you lay a strong foundation so you can be established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we find the purpose. The purpose of everything that he's writing. That, that really ends the formalities for the rest of the, the book of Romans until you come to the very end when he says his, gives his salutations. Starting in the next verse, that's really where the meat begins. And he begins with an, in, an introduction. And can you guess what his introduction is going to be about? Starts with a G. Yeah, the gospel. Exactly. So let's read verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. As he introduces the gospel, there's, there's something that, that actually blows my mind when I really start to th started to think about it, is that he begins with this idea, I am not ashamed. What reason is there to be ashamed of the gospel? I mean, why would Paul even bring it up? 
why wouldn't he just begin by saying, this is the gospel? But it says, I want you to know, brother, I'm not ashamed of this. Well, why would someone say that? Because there might be some thoughts that, that you should be ashamed of it, right? Or, or that maybe people are being ashamed of it. And so why on earth would, would people think that the gospel is something to be ashamed of? And I started thinking about that, and it reminded me of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. I'll put the words on the screen. But 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 through 25, he wrote this. He said, for the message of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. So to those who are, are on their way to death, they hear the message of the cross, and to them it's foolish. But to those, or but to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. It goes on in verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached. To save those who believe. What is he saying? He's saying, the world is, isn't looking for the gospel. And when they see it, 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 no, no, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something else. Uh, why? Because they want something that they can reason their way completely to it. Don't they? And so they look at the gospel and they're like, no, that's, no, that's not it. That's, that's foolishness. And it pleases God to use the foolishness, uh, um, the foolishness of the message preached. Why? Because it confounds the wise. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 22, For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews were religious people. The Greeks, they were philosophers. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified. Well, is that, which is that? It doesn't really fit either of those. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, what is that? That's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the message of Christ, what is it? It's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's what the gospel is about. So, if you, so don't quote me outside of here, out of context, saying, Pastor Dave said the gospel is foolish. <laughs> but from a man's perspective, it's foolishness. But the foolishness of God is much wiser than anything any human being could ever come up with. So we, when we think about that, so we, we, we look at, here we have a picture of a Jewish man. What is, what is the gospel to him? It, it's, a, it's a stumbling block. It's something to trip over. Why? Well, what did the Jews do to Jesus? Yeah, they crucified him, right? They put him in the grave. That's where they wanted him. He didn't stay there. He came back. Ooh, that's a stumbling block. So to tell somebody... Your only route to salvation is to admit that you killed your own Messiah. That's a stumbling block, isn't it? It's a stumbling block. In order to come over that, to that stumbling block, what does it require? Humility. Right? Humility. That's important. To the philosopher, right? what is it? It's foolishness. Right? I mean, if you're the Christian, you're, you're the dunce. Right? How can you believe that kind of stuff? You're the dunce. Why? Because... They want to reason their way to the truth of the gospel. They want to reason their way. They want to find it through some type of philosophy. And, and, they, and, and so you've got, whether you're religious or whether you're a secularist, um, it doesn't work. The gospel isn't what you were looking for. 
That's why Paul comes in and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. You might think that I should be ashamed of this, but I'm, I'm actually going to own this, and I'm proud of it. In fact, he says multiple times, I boast not in myself, I boast in what? In the cross, in, the, in, in Christ, and in, in him crucified. That's what he boasts of. It's not only not ashamed, he's proud of it. And, uh, and that's, that's the world that we, that we live in. So if you are perishing, if you are dying, if you are not on your way to salvation, if you are on your way to hell, then guess what? You're going to look at the gospel and you're going to say that's foolish. So the truth of the gospel will be ridiculed by the world. Now, far be it from anyone in our culture to ridicule the gospel, right? Be honest. Our culture loves ripping um, Christianity. I went online and I did a search. I just put in the word Christianity. You know that there are more references in, of ridicule against Christianity on the first page than there are references of what Christianity actually is. That's our culture. I took seven of them. I'm going to show you seven of them. I, I don't want to dive too deep into this, so, so bear with me, but here's seven of them. Here was the first, very first one. I know you can't read it, but it's a picture of Christ on the cross, and it says Christianity. This is what, it, the, what the words below say. It says, Christianity, the belief that a cosmic Jewish zombie who was his own father can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him you accept him as your master so he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib-slash-woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, ridicule. Ridicule. Here, uh, here's another one. Uh, this, if you don't know who this is, this is George Clooney. And, it, and, it's, and it, there's a quote from him, and it says, I don't believe in heaven and hell. I don't know if there's a God. All I know is that as an individual, I won't allow this life, the only thing I know to exist, to be wasted. He's not just ripping on any religion. What religion is he ripping on? Christianity. Otherwise, he wouldn't have brought up heaven and hell. Or Gwyneth Paltrow. Religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. Yeah. I don't believe in organized religion at all. It's what separates people. One religion just represents fragments. It causes war. More people have died because of religious conflict than any other reason. Is that true? That's just riddled with lies as well as misconceptions. Or here's another one, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt wrote, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you won't get it. It seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. He was raised in an evangelical family. Uh, or House, he's not a real person, he's a fictional character, but this is a TV show uh, on House where they, where they consistently ridicule Christianity. One of the quotes, if you could reason with religious people, there would be no religious people. Anyone starting to feel a little offended yet? Uh, here's the, the sixth one. It says, atheism, good enough for these idiots. And then they put pictures of brilliant, at least intelligent people. Not all of whom are actually atheists, but I'll get to that. <laughs> and the last one, uh, this is George Carlin. He's a comedian slash actor. And he wrote, uh, Reli religion 
has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day of your life. And he has a list of ten things he does not want you to do. If you do any, any of these ten things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and ash and torture where he will send you to suffer and burn and scream and cry forever and ever until the end of time. But he loves you. He loves you and he needs money. This is the world we live in. Right, this is first page. I could have gone on and on and on, right? And this is the world understanding of Christianity. But there's something to combat that. And what is that? It's one sixteen through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We, we have the one thing that will actually save us. And, you know, people are willing because of shame to give up the very thing that would save them. Think about that. But it's human nature. There was an experiment. Uh, they called it the waiting room experiment that was done where they, they hired a group of actors and they would put them in a waiting room. And almost all of the people in the room were, were, were actors. And they just acted simply like people in a waiting room. Probably the easiest gig they ever got, right? And so they were just supposed to act like, like people waiting in a waiting room. Then comes in some other people who are not actors, unaware of what's going on. So they would come in and they would sit down. And then the fire alarm would go off. But see, the actors were told that the fire alarm was going to go off. And they were to act like there was no fire alarm. So they would just, you know, and they went right back to their reading. The test was to see what those other people, the non-actors, would do. And you know what they did? They looked around like, is anyone going to get up? And they did nothing. Well then, part of, the, part of the experiment, smoke starts coming out one of the doors. You'd think that would get people moving, right? But wait a minute. You know, it's, I hear a fire alarm. I see smoke. And they, got, they start to get up and they realize no one else is getting up. You know what they did? Without exception, sat back down. Sat back down. Over and over and over again. They did, the, they did the test over and over again. And not one person was willing to get out of there. Why? Because they're ashamed of doing what everyone else isn't doing. And they did it to the point where they said, if they had done this in real life, even if they had decided to leave at the end, you know, when they saw flames, it would have been too late. There would have been no possible way. They're willing to give up the very thing that would have saved their lives. Why? Because they're ashamed of doing something in contrary, that is contrary to what everybody else is doing. Apply that principle. Understand the human nature a little bit. Apply that principle to what could save us from eternity away from God. And yet people are willing, out of shame, to give that up. Not only give it up, ridicule anyone who accepts it. That's what we find happening, even in the book of Romans. That's what we find happening. I mean, when you, when you really think it through, the point is that, that we have to be willing to set aside our shame, humble ourselves to be able to accept the gospel. Does that make sense? If you, if you think of the big story of, of, of history, I mean, I'm going back even prior to human history. Go back to, to, 
to the heavens, when you have one person, Lucifer, who in his pride said, I want to be like the Most High. I want to have his position. I want, I, I, I. And that pride led him to rebel against God. And that pride also led one-third of the angels to follow him. When you look at the big picture, it makes sense that God would create a way of salvation that requires humility. Right? That's what it's about. to, To show us who we are in comparison to God so that we can genuinely understand, understand and love our God. And you know what? He does love us. He doesn't need our money, right? But he does love us. And, uh, and he has a plan for us. I mean, you could take any of those ridicules, and I believe that if, as we study the book of Romans, by the, the end of this, we'll be able to combat our culture in love, but we'll hear that kind of stuff, and, it won't, and we'll, we'll see it for what it is. Here's an example. Take the Christianity uh, uh, thing that we that we saw or definition that we read earlier. I mean, you can make that sound anyway. It does say it says a, a Jewish, uh, it says a cosmic Jewish zombie. Why cosmic? Because cos- he's heavenly, right? Jewish. He was Jewish. Zombie because he came back from the dead. See, that's where they're getting that. Who was his own father? Because Jesus did say, "I and the Father are one." Can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh. Throw a little bad theology in there. Uh, we don't teach that. Uh, we believe the Bible. And so the, but the, the idea that some believe that in order to be saved, you have to participate in communion. And telepathically tell him you accept him as your master. Pray. So he can remove an evil force, sin, from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman, Eve, was convinced by a talking snake. That's not even accurate either. It was, it was a serpent, but it was Lucifer himself. To eat from a magical tree, there was nothing magical about the tree, right? It was just the fact that it was disobedience to God. That's what brought sin into the world. And you look at those definitions and and, and you say, you can make anything sound bad if you want to, right? Right. You can make make the truth in any circumstance sound bad if you do this. And I've seen a lot of Christians try to respond uh, by ridiculing ridiculing them. And that, uh, that doesn't always work either, does it? Right? And you, can, and you can try this. But the fact is, you can make anything sound very different without even lying. Right? It reminds me of a, of a, a text conversation I read on, online not long ago. And uh, it, went, it went something like this. It said, uh, hey, I just, I just watched an awesome movie. Right? Really? What was it about? A man's wife is brutally murdered by a serial killer, and his son is left physically disabled. And, in a twisted turn of events, his son gets kidnapped, and he has to chase the kidnapper thousands of miles across the ocean, and the only clue he has is from a mentally disabled woman. Sounds gruesome. What's it called? Anyone know what it's called? Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo. Exactly. (laughs) They weren't lying. That's what the story's about, right? It's a children's movie. You You can make anything sound horrible if you want to. But, but if you get past the insults, you get past all that, and you actually look at the facts of what things are, makes all the difference in the world. Uh, take, take even the, the, the uh, atheism. This is good enough for these idiots. Look at those. Uh, there's Albert Einstein who also said, the more I study science, the more I what? Believe in God. Hmm, interesting. Or take Abraham Lincoln that they throw in there as well. Where he said, uh, he said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Does that sound like an atheist to you? 
Yeah, so the, when, the, when the atheists don't have the burden of honesty on their side, there's no reason to be honest, uh, they can say whatever they want to say, they, they can make things, they can twist things and make things sound that way, and the problem is our, our young people are falling for it. They leave our churches and we haven't prepared them to go off to college where they're hearing this day in, day out, and they start believing it. But as a church, we have to do exactly what Paul was trying to do in Romans, and we have to lay a strong theological foundation. Do we not? We have to be convinced of that. And, uh, and I hope that's what, uh, what we're convinced of by the end of today. You know, we could go on and on trying to, to fight these battles and, and, uh, and, and show the ridiculousness of all of those things. Now, I'm not going to go into all that uh, because, in truth, the problem really isn't about external evidence, is it? It's about an internal problem within us why we don't want to accept the gospel. It's an internal problem. It's the sin nature that does not allow us to desire the gospel. But you know what? The gospel is the very thing that will save us if we let it. It's the very thing that will save us. Let's read it one more time. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You can read it with me. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. What about you? I'm only going to ask two questions. Two questions. Number one, has your shame of the gospel, the shame that our culture puts on the gospel, has it caused you to reject it? group this size, chances are there are some of us in here who are no different than those people sitting in that waiting room. And there, the signs are there. The Holy Spirit's nudging, right? And everything, just like the alarm's going off. You see the smoke, and you know something. there's got to be something more than what our science books are telling us, right? There's got to be something more. But I can't accept the gospel. I can't come forward. I can't... I can't uh, Except the gospel. Man, my family would, would make fun of me. My professors at, at school, they would, they would ridicule me. My friends would tease me. I can't do it. I'm telling you, the fire's coming and it's real. Listen to the fire alarm. See the smoke. Respond to the gospel today. Amen. I'm going to give you an opportunity today. We have some people that, again, they have those lanyards. It just says, ask me. All you have to do is go up to one of them and just say, uh, um, just say I have a question to ask you. They'll take it from there. And they can show you from God's word how you can know for sure that you have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very same gospel we're going to study for the next who knows how long. But, but they can show you from scripture how you can know for sure you have salvation. And I'm telling you, don't leave here today without that assurance. There's no reason to. Just as I would tell someone if, if you're in an office somewhere and a fire alarm goes off, and there's smoke coming out the doors. Get out of the building, right? I'm telling you to do that spiritually. The second thing, is, for those who are believers, I want to ask you this. Have you been ashamed of the gospel that's caused you not to share the gospel? This one pierces a little bit deeper for some of us, doesn't it? And there, I, think, I think all of, the, of those who are here who have been saved, who have accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, would probably say, Pastor Dave, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Here. Right? 
but at work, eh, keeps us from bringing it up because we're afraid that they're going to respond just like those seven web pages that we saw earlier. And we're not going to know how to deal with that. You know what? That's sin. That's sin. We should start like Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And as we study it, if you listen, if you, if you let God speak through his word, as we study together the book of Romans, I am convinced you will not be ashamed of the gospel either. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment as I pray. And in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come forward for either of those two things. Whether it's to say, Pastor Dave, I have not accepted the gospel because I've listened to the ridicule of the world and I want to accept the gospel today. If that's you, we'd love to talk with you. Or perhaps you're a believer today and you're saying, Pastor Dave, I have allowed what the world has been telling us to keep me from unashamedly proclaiming the gospel. And if that's you today, this will be the chance to come forward. And you don't have to come talk to anyone. Just come forward and pray. Perhaps there's even shame working in you right now that's saying, oh, I could never go forward because then people might think ill of me or people might think of this or they might think that. That's the same shame that you're trying to repent of. Don't let it keep you from coming forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that every single one of us would be able to say what Paul said, that we are not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, Lord, that we would brag on it. We never brag on ourselves, but may we always brag on you and what Christ did on the cross to pay for our sins. But Lord, your prophets prophesied it. You promised it through the genealogies and you fulfilled it. And we, we saw it even a couple weeks ago as we looked at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know it's true. But may we never be ashamed of it. I pray this in Christ's name.